Okay. It's Vision Sunday. Ooh. What does that mean? It's like a politician standing up with a political party manifesto. You know, what are we about? What are we going to do? Well, kind of, but not quite. We have a, a strap line, don't we, as a community, that we are a family of God in the presence of God, displaying the glory of God. You can call it a vision statement. You can call it our hope. And it seeks to try and orientate us around what the kind of, the idea is of the expression of our gathering together, our fellowship in the Spirit, our oneness in God and what he's going to do with us. The challenge with looking at a vision is that as you look across the face of the world, you can see so many things that humanity has done without God. We've built stadiums, massive engineering projects. We have financial systems and we have the internet we have satellites, we have spacecraft, we have a whole raft of things, not all of which have God at the centre, not all of which are God's design and his purpose. They may be expressions of his creative intent in people, but they don't have him as the head and the originator. He's not CEO, he's not the executive producer. He's somehow pushed to one side. So we have a great ability as human beings to create vision and go after it in and of our own strength. With our own passion, with our own intentionality. To see the vision expressed and make it happen. But you are not natural. You are supernatural. The very fact that you are in this room today expresses the fact that you are supernatural in your condition. You are here not for a human gathering of shared experience and conversation and belief and outworking of vision. You actually come here because the God of eternity has broken into your world and you now orientate your life around him. And so we gather together to seek him and his will and his purposes above everything else. That's what it's about. So we're a supernatural people gathered together for and by this supernatural cause. We're not just people sat in a room for social need. In fact, the church itself is the expression on earth of the manifest wisdom of God. Can you raise a hand if you are of Jewish origin? <laughs> None in the room today. Oh, did we have one? Brilliant, brilliant, welcome. Wow, fantastic. So we have two amongst, what, I don't know, 160. 
God's manifest wisdom in Christ, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, is that he has brought together what the principalities and powers could not understand. And he has brought together both the race of Israel and opened up the promise through them into the world, through his Son, so that all nations might now come and have relationship with him. And that's the church. Put your hand up if you're white British. There's quite a few of us. Put your hand up if you're not. Shout out where you're from. Nigeria, St. Lucia, Sierra Leone. Wow. This is the manifest wisdom of God that he gathers people from across the nations into his community. And that we now express the manifest wisdom of God that where there was once division, not only between the Jews and the Gentiles, those of the covenant promises of God and those outside, but across the nations. And now what would divide people actually joins people. For we have one God, one Saviour, Jesus Christ, and one Spirit by whom the church is united and empowered for the kingdom of God to come. That's who you are. That's who you are today, right now. You are wholly unnatural. And it's a wonderful thing. Jesus proclaims in Matthew 16 that he will build his church. And it's on the basis of the revelation to Peter by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And so Jesus says to him, yes, absolutely, on this truth of who I am, I will build my church and hell and death shall not prevail against it. Peter goes on to write in one of his letters later on that we are living stones of this temple of God. That we are the same expression. Peter is called the rock. But Jesus uses a diminutive term for him in that sentence. He is a little rock. But he calls himself, he refers to the truth of who he is as the big foundation stone. And so he sets up the picture. He says, I am the big foundation stone, guys, upon which everything rests. And Peter, you're a bit of that. And Peter goes on to write to the church and say, you're all a bit of that. You are living stones. The dynamic, spirit-filled, life-breathed dwelling place of God. That's who you are. That's what you are. He goes on to say that Actually, the disciples will be given the keys to the kingdom. That you will be given authority to bind on earth and it will be bound in heaven. And to release on earth so that it is also released in heaven. And it's all because of who Jesus is. 
And so we have this authority now to see the kingdom of God expressed in the earth because of the work of Christ. His life, his death, and his resurrection means that the church now conveys power and authority. Power to be able to bring freedom, to draw people into the kingdom of light. So they are released, they are loosed. They are enabled to enter into the kingdom of God, to experience his freedom, to experience freedom from sin, freedom from darkness, freedom from oppression. They can now enter in through the church, through the message of the gospel. But the church also has the authority to bind, to actually limit the work of Satan in the world. And what Gareth has talked about in the night shelter is a functional expression of that. But not only do we do it functionally, but we do it by the spirit and the authority of God as we minister to people to see breakthrough in their lives, where there is demonic oppression, where there is sickness, where there is disease, where there is heartbreak and brokenness, we see the Spirit of God come and set free and bind from influence that which seeks to destroy. This is the church. This is you. We are a family in God. I'm a, a little bit peculiar about language, and you may see it written as the family of God in the presence of God, displaying the glory of God. And I get a bit twitchy, because I think we're not the only one. We're a family of God. And that's fine, because I know the intent of the the wasn't to isolate out all other fellowships of God. We are a family of God. And so our horizontal relationships mean that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are now related in ways that outside of the church people aren't. We have fellowship together. We're not just brothers and sisters, but we're mothers and fathers in the Spirit of God. We strengthen one another. We build one another up. We do family. And as Paul writes so clearly in so many places, love is the inherent expression of family together in all that we do. Organisationally, we need some structure. We need some degree of procedure and formality in order for us to work in our humanness. But we also need grace and forgiveness and gentleness and mercy as we journey. Don't know about your family situation. I can't believe in any other household pants are left on the floor. And I can't believe that anywhere else dishes are placed near but not in the dishwasher. But whatever irks us, whatever causes us friction or challenge, we know that at the end of the day as family we love one another and it's not so fundamental that we're going to move out and live somewhere else. 
And so the challenge as we grow together, as we live together, as we do life together, is to move on into maturity in Christ, where we one another so very well in forgiveness, in kindness, in mercy, in seeking restoration where it's needed. But the positives in developing relationship. I was listening to um, C.S. Lewis the other day. I, I do some consultancy work and I have the opportunity to do it on my own at the moment. And uh, so I plug myself in and I was listening to C.S. Lewis and he was saying that it is amazing that when we look at another human being, we see that which is not temporal, but that which is eternal. That when we sit alongside someone else, we recognise that eternity is in them, that they are of infinite value that they are recognised and purposed by God, whether it's on the tube in London and we have no idea of their beliefs or whether we're sat on church in church on a Sunday morning and they're worshipping and praising God. For one, we have the possibility of an eternity and a connection of relationship in God. For the other, we have the fear and the horror that the very God who knows everything might not know them. And the very God who is everywhere might banish them from his presence. This is the motivation of love in our community that gets expressed in these walls and outside that causes us to see the nature of humanity as that which is created in God's image first and foremost. That every individual is eternal. And every individual is presented with this opportunity to know and be known or to not know and forever be unknown by God. That motivates our hearts of compassion and love to reach out to the world around us, to share the good things we enjoy together. Not only do we have horizontal relationships, but we've got a vertical relationship, haven't we? We have a king who is head of the family. He is the head of the church, as Paul describes him. He is the one that we all look to together. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one that we seek to emulate. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end of all things. Sometimes our orientation in our understanding of discipleship gets a little flipped round. To what extent do we have greater trust and action in believing that he is a great leader and he's enabling, he's, he enables leadership to happen in our relationship with him and he leads us brilliantly versus our ability to diligently follow? 
to what extent like the disciples who invariably haven't got a clue follow him because he is very good? Or to what extent do they self-analyze and seek to strive to become all that Jesus asks them to be without actually looking up at him who's leading and following? We need to trust in Christ's ability to lead us more than in our ability to follow. And that's positional. In this family, how do we position ourselves with him? We position ourselves in relationship to his leading and his authority, both through the logos, the written word of what he says but also the Rema word of the Spirit that comes to us and leads us and guides us. The still small voice as we position ourselves before him daily. To what extent is our orientation around our due diligence versus who he is and his ability to lead us? I'll leave you to explore that. I'll just leave that hanging there. As his church, as his body, we have his DNA. As his family, we now partake in his nature. And so the expression of the Holy Spirit is being manifest as his DNA has more and more sway over us. And those of you who are scientifically minded and understanding how we're dealing with gene therapies and all the rest can understand this concept of actually taking out what is sick within our code and putting into us what is healthy. And so the gene gets expressed in us in terms of health and wellness. That's what God's doing with us spiritually. He is making all things new. We are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. You are supernatural. You're not natural. I was going to say normal. <laughs> You're not normal. You can say that of me as well, of course. So we're renewed in our minds by being partakers of the family of God through the washing of his word, through the express word through his spirit and through fellowship in the community of faith where the gifts are expressed in Ephesians 4, I think it is, Paul talks about how he's given all these ministries to the church, the apostolic, the pastoral, the teacher, the etc. Why? For the equipping of the church. And that word equipping is rooted in the resetting of a bone that is out of shape. And so what Paul's saying is that I'm giving you gifts to the church so that what is contorted, what is out of shape, may be made straight, i.e. in accordance with God's original plan. And so why do we gather? We gather in order that our bones might be made straight, but that we might be equipped in the supernatural outworking of what the church is.
and therefore strengthened without weaknesses that come by living according to the world's rules, we are now enabled to see the kingdom of God expressed through us as a community. So we're a family of God. I want to move on to the phrase, in the presence of God. If we look quickly at Deuteronomy 5, we have a scenario where the people of God are afraid of God's presence. And in Deuteronomy 5.29, God says this, because they say basically, look Moses, you go up the mountain, you deal with God, we've seen your face glowing, put a cover over it, you're scaring us, we won't go because we'll burn up. You go do it, we'd rather not. And in verse 29 of chapter chapter 5, God says this, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Verse 30, go say to them, go to your tents. What a tragic moment. What a tragic moment. God didn't intend to have one singular relationship with Moses instead of being with the people. But the people in that moment recognized their inability to follow the commands, but didn't understand the dynamic possibility of grace. And so they said, look, we're going to get burnt up. We can't come close. We're going to get destroyed. Moses, you go do it. You go do it. Was Moses perfect? No, he wasn't perfect. But what did he do? Moses believed God. He took hold of his promises and he stepped in. When we talk about the presence of God, we need to recognise that it is invitational for us all. Not for a few, not for some of us who stand up the front or who do other things. There isn't a glass ceiling in God. Or let me rephrase it. There isn't a limit that God puts on us, but there are limits that we place ourselves. Now, as we roll through Deuteronomy in chapter 6, we see the royal commandment, the royal law, which is this in verse 5 of Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in the house or when you walk by the way. When you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. And he goes on. So it actually sort of just clarifies the relationship. The Ten Commandments in and of themselves point to something. And it is clarified here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. This is the recovery of what was lost. The recovery of Eden. The interaction of people with God once again. 
I don't know about you, but I wax and wane in my passion for the Lord. Too often church can become dutiful. Or it can just become social. It's what we do, right? And sometimes we can have expectations on ourselves because I ought to. I ought to be there. I ought to show my face. People may think badly of me if I don't go. It's a whole load of things that happen in us, aren't there, when we're in community. But actually, what God says is it's about our relationship, you and me. His relationship with you and a burning and a longing in you to be with him. It's a relationship of love. Psalm 42, you probably know it really well, you might not know it's 42. As the deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? There's a hunger in the psalmist writing, isn't there? There's a hunger. As the deer pants for living water. Just imagine that picture for a moment. A deer in a dry place, the mirage of hot air in front of it. It's tongue out, thirsting, panting, needing refreshment, needing God. It's an expression where this animal is likely to die if it doesn't get the water it so needs. And so the psalmist is taking this illustration. I need your presence more than the air I breathe. More than water to drink. This is how valuable your presence is to me. I long for you. I thirst for you. Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you. Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. The Psalms point us to something. The greatest command, love the Lord your God with your whole being, all of you, point us to something. They point us to an intimacy and a relationship that is intense. That you might get somebody who doesn't know the Lord tap you on the shoulder when you're talking about him saying, there, there, calm down. Calm down, you're getting yourself worked up. Really? Well, if that's your perspective, you don't know him so well. Because he's worth getting worked up over. There are two characters I'd like to share with you that express this so very well. The first is Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, seeking him first above any other convention. Maybe I ought to be out the back helping Martha serve. 
Maybe everybody in the room's burning a hole in the back of my head, expecting me to be out the back, doing what I'm expected to do. But no, I want one thing, and that is to sit at the feet of my master and adore him and absorb everything he's got to say to me. She stays in pursuit of the better thing, to be with him. Jesus chooses to go to one place before he's crucified. He goes to Bethany. Why? That's where Mary and Martha are and Lazarus. That's where he gets anointed by Mary, who pours out the oil, filling the room with fragrance, filling the house, an outrageous expression of love and devotion. She gives her all. And in psychological terms, she's wholly disagreeable. In other words, she doesn't care what those around us thinks. And then we have John. I don't really read a huge amount in the Gospels about John and what he does and what he says. He's quite quiet. Writes a few letters. Writes obviously the gospel, Revelation. But he's in his writing, he's able to say of himself, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. Now he's not discounting everybody else. He's just saying that's the main thing that identifies him. I'm the one whom Jesus loved. He's the one that all the other disciples said, ask him. Who is this one who's going to betray him? Ask him. And he's the one whom Jesus told. And in chapter 17 of his book, John writes this about Jesus' high priestly prayer before he's crucified. He writes this. Jesus prays that the love the Father has for him for Jesus, may also be in his disciples. Jesus is praying, let these disciples love me like you do, Father. And I believe Jesus wasn't in error by presenting that as a prayer. And so wherever we're at in our journey of relationship with God, whether we feel a million miles away or feel quite close, this is something that we too can pray. Father, would you fill my heart with your love for Jesus? And I believe it's a prayer the Holy Spirit will answer time and time again. Because it is intimacy and relationship with God that has to precede anything else that we do. Before we move on to displaying the glory of God, we must be in his presence. We must be with him and intimate with him. Jesus drew the disciples to himself first before they did a thing. Can we just pray that right now? Father God, we ask that by your spirit you put in us the love that you have for Jesus that we might love him in the same way.
open us up, Lord God, to be filled with your love for Jesus. Amen. You see, the reality is that discipline is not going to get us that far. If you've got an area of life that you struggle in, be it greed or pornography or just waste of resources and money and, and flittering stuff away or bad relationships or whatever it is, that stuff isn't going to get resolved through adherence to a set of rules and controls because they're heart issues. They only get resolved by loving him. Because when we love him above all other things, we see a thousand sins fall away. Because he fills our gaze and he strengthens us and enables us for his call. Our eyes and our vision get filled with him, nothing else. And so Paul is able to say, I count and consider everything rubbish compared to knowing him. Everything, all the accolades, all the history, all my genealogy of life being from this tribe and going through Gamaliel's school of training and everything I've ever known. And all the social prowess, everything is rubbish compared to knowing him. And so he finds his wholeness in the vision of Jesus. As the gaze of Jesus is upon him as he spends time with him and his heart is filled for love for him, he sees everything else fall away. We're coming into land. Displaying the glory of God. I've already alluded to it at the start. The expression of the glory of God as a community gathered together, we are grafted into Israel by faith. We are now partakers of the covenant promise of God. And so we find ourselves a supernatural community displaying the glory of God in so much that the death and resurrection gathers the nations together into family. And that the covenant promise is expressed more and more widely. But we also display the glory of God in the way I started out with. Which is that the church carries the supernatural mission of God to see his kingdom extended. We corporately together carry that as we meet and we pray, as we intercede for the town, for circumstances and situations, as we get on our knees before the King of Kings, we see things shift and change. We believe that, right? It's not a, well, you know, a prayer meeting. It's like a prayer meeting. Oh my. <laughs> Let's see, what's he going to do? What is he going to do? We come before the living God together corporately as a body, saying to the head, come and have your will, come and have your way. In us, through us, beyond us, have your way. Come, Lord God, and Jesus invites us. He says, come, pray, gather together. Seek my face and I will lead you. So corporately, we gather to pray, to intercede on behalf of those that don't know him, to seek his face, to enter into his presence, to look again at his beauty 
which is what we've been doing in worship this morning. But individually as well, we recognize that as we go on this journey of growing in love and affection for the Lord above all other things, we start to place our very lives under his instruction. We start to believe him when he speaks and he says that he has all authority. And we start to pray according to his will and his purpose. And so we see the kingdom of darkness pushed back and the kingdom of light extended as we express the resurrection life of Christ by loving the world around us, but taking the next step of faith and actually inviting people in to encounter with the one who lives inside us. So that they actually meet and engage with the living God. And that glory is known because God is with us. And that person encounters the risen king. And they go, I can go to that place. I can be amongst that people. And I can encounter God. I can encounter him through receiving grace and mercy in my hour of need. I can encounter him through receiving the gospel of salvation. I can encounter him through the recovery of what is lost and the instead of God. Joy instead, gladness instead, peace instead, love instead, mercy instead, eternity instead. So you are wholly unnatural. And our vision as a community together is to pursue Jesus Christ in everything we do, corporately and individually. That we might be a family, as I've described. That we might enter into his presence personally, individually, but corporately, absolutely. And in the scriptures, the primacy is corporate. And that we might display his glory we might take those steps of faith to know him and make him known. Should we pray? Father God, we, we offer ourselves to you at the beginning of 2022. We ask you to come and lead and to guide us, to speak to us, to connect with us individually. We ask that your grace and your mercy might be known in our lives. But we ask also that the power and outworking of your spirit and your kingdom come might be very evident in us this year. Would you come, Lord God, and do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine? Come strengthen us, equip us and enable us for all that you have in your heart, all that you have planned to do for the glory of Jesus. Amen.